Throughout the years, um, I've had the opportunity many times to share the gospel with those who, what the Bible calls, are without God and without hope in the world, who have very little knowledge, actually, of who God is. Let me ask you this before we uh, enter into the, the reading this, more, uh, this morning, this afternoon now, and that is, um, do you know God? I mean, do you really know him? Jesus says in uh, his high priestly prayer from John 17, and this is eternal life, that you, that you may know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So how well do you know God? And if, if you grow up in the church, you just kind of assume you know him, and you probably do know a lot of things about him compared to many people in the world. But do you really understand who God is in his attributes, his characteristics? We're going we're gonna to consider that as we continue through our, our series on um, uh, a document that lays out the fundamentals of the Christian faith that we believe, which we will confess in just a moment. But for now, I want to draw your attention to 1 Chronicles chapter 13. I'm going to read the entire chapter, but it's not a very long chapter, actually, as we focus on one attribute of God that is very important for us to understand, and that is what we call the justice of God. What does it mean that God is just. It's important that we understand it because you and I will not then understand and appreciate what we call the other side of the coin of God, and that is his mercy. All right? So the first Chronicles chapter 13. Here we have an example of justice, many people would say, in the extreme. First Chronicles 13, David consulted with the commanders of thousands and of hundreds with every leader. And David said to all the assembly of Israel, if it seems good to you and from the Lord our God, let us send abroad to our brothers who remain in all the lands of Israel, as well as to the priests and Levites in the cities that have pasture lands, that they may gather to us and let us bring again the ark of our God to us, for we did not seek it in the days of Saul. And all the assembly agreed to do so, for the thing was right in the eyes of all the people. So, David assembled all Israel from the Nile of Egypt to Labo Hamath to bring the ark of God from Kiriath-Jerim. And David and all Israel went up to Bala, that is, to Kiriath-Jerim, that belongs to Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord, who sits enthroned above the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart from the house of Abinadab and Uzzah and Ohio were driving the cart. Now, elsewhere, in a parallel passage from, the, uh, from uh, the, uh, another book of the Bible, we read that um, the, the, the men, Uzzah and Ahio, who were accompanying the ark, Ahio was before the ark, and Uzzah was alongside of the ark. They're the two sons of Abinadab. All right. And David and all Israel were rejoicing before God with all their might, with song and lyres and harps and tambourines and cymbals and trumpets. So it was a big party. And when they came to the threshing floor of Kidon, Uzzah put out his hand to take hold of the ark, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and he struck him down, because he put out his hand to the ark, and he died there before God. David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. And that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of God that day. And he said, how can I bring the ark of God home to me? So David did not take the ark home into the city of David, but took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. 
And the ark of God remained with the household of Obed-Edom in his house for three months. And the Lord blessed the household of Obed-Edom in all that he had. Now, we see an example, and I'll explain this a little bit in the sermon itself, example of a just action of God. We see the justice of God. Now, we fill that out uh, in another way from question answers 9 through 11 through of the Heidelberg Catechism. You put that up there, please, if you would. Okay, I'm going to read the question, and then together, let's give the answer, and when we speak, let's, let's speak out loud. Okay, here's question 9. But does God not do man an injustice by requiring in his law what man cannot do? And let's say together, no, for God so created man that he was able to do it. But man, at the instigation of the devil, in deliberate disobedience, robbed himself and all his descendants of these gifts. Question 10. Will God allow such disobedience and apostasy to go unpunished? Certainly not. He is terribly angry with our original sin as well as our actual sins. Therefore, he will punish them by a just judgment both now and eternally. As he has declared, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Finally, 11, but is God not also merciful? God is indeed merciful, but he is also just. His justice requires that sin committed against the most high majesty of God also be punished with the most severe, that is, with everlasting punishment of body and soul. Now, welcome to the justice of God. And when we, let me get back to our passage, First, uh, uh, first Chronicles 13. Um, I think this, this passage, First Chronicles 13, remains uh, somewhat of a mystery to us and in many ways can unsettle us. And also, it just seems so terribly over the top, the way that God responds to this man named Uzzah, unless we understand who God is and who we're dealing with, and particularly when we understand the, what we call the justice of God, or that God is just. Now, the great Greek philosopher Aristotle many years ago said that justice is giving someone what is their due. And the Bible teaches us that Sin, no matter how small, deserves the just penalty of God, which is, as we see in this passage, death. Now, I don't know if you ever do this, but when you read your Bibles, do you ever read it, and I bring this up every once in a while, but do you ever read it in such a way that you try to imagine reading it for the first time? You didn't grow up in a Christian family, you didn't have that privilege. Somebody gave you a Bible, and you open up the Bible, and let's say one of the first passages you read from First Chronicles 13, I think a lot of us would say, if that is the Christian God, or that is the God of the Bible, you can have it, there's no way. 
I want to follow that kind of God. He seems mean-spirited. He seems like he wakes up sometimes on the wrong side of the bed. He is capricious. He is not fair. He is not just. He is certainly not loving. I don't want to have anything to do with this God. And we have to understand that that would be kind of a natural reaction among people. That is, unless they understand something about God and unless they understand the justice of God and, and, and until they understand just how serious, the Bible uses the term many times, sin, just how serious sin is, whether it be our sinful nature or our sinful actions that come forth from our nature, that God is not the kind of God that can deal with that lightly or God's not the kind of God that is just so loving that he can simply dismiss it and say, well, my love overrides my justice and so don't worry about it. It'll be all okay in the end. That's not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible, as we're going to see this afternoon, is holy he is righteous, I'll explain those things, and he is just. Now, is he merciful? Is he loving? Is he understanding? Is he patient? Yes, all of those things. But those things that the world so often emphasizes do not cancel out the other attributes of God. So, like a lot of things I explained last week, everything has to be, has to be in proper balance, a good biblical balance. So, we're going to focus on justice so that as the weeks go by and we start understanding some of the love and the mercy of God, we're going to be able to better appreciate it. Because you will never understand the beauty of light until light is contrasted with darkness. Right? So first the darkness, then the light. And by the way, one other quick thing. Anytime I work with people outside the faith and I talk to them about the God of the Bible and the contents of the Bible, I always say this. Okay, we're going to start out. I start with some diagnostic questions, see where they're coming from. And then I say, okay, I'm just going to tell you ahead of time, we're going to deal with some bad news first, and then we're going to get to the good news. But you're not going to be able to appreciate the good news until you first see the bad news. So first, the bad news. Okay? Let's go and take a look at the passage. And I'm going to explain the story really simply for the sake of the kids. Okay? So kids, listen up. This passage revolves around a, a piece of furniture. We might call it, very basically, a holy piece of furniture. It's a beautiful piece of furniture. It's called, in this passage, the Ark of God, but elsewhere in the Bible, it's called the, and maybe you've heard this before, the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark of the Covenant was beautiful. It was about, try to imagine this, four feet long, two feet deep, two feet wide, it's made out of special wood called acacia wood, and that acacia wood was overlaid with gold. And then on the top of this Ark of the Covenant, there was a solid gold seat or a solid gold covering called the mercy seat. And on top of this mercy seat, you had two angels facing each other. We call cherubim angels made out of gold as well. Can you imagine how beautiful that must have looked? Now, so much more could be said about the Ark of the Covenant. We'll reserve that for another time. I'm sure we'll talk more in depth about the Ark of the Covenant. In the future. But for now, it's very important that we understand that the, the Ark of the Covenant, listen carefully, symbolized the presence of God with his people. That was not a small thing. And that's why God was very clear that no dirty, soiled human hands were to touch that Ark because that was touching upon the very presence of a holy God himself. So get that in mind before we continue on with the story. Now, with the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of the Covenant was in a private residence at this point, a place called Kiriath-Jerim. Now, years before, 
you had a group of uh, individuals who are opposed to the people of God, the people of Israel. They called the Philistines. You read about the Philistines all the time in the Bible. And the Philistines went to war with the people of Israel, and in so doing, they actually captured the Ark of the Covenant. And they thought, oh, this is a great prize. So they took the Ark of the Covenant, and they brought it back with them to their own country, but things really turned sour. They developed tumors, and they experienced difficulties. It was great sorrow for them to have the Ark of the Covenant. In fact, after seven months, they couldn't wait to get rid of this piece of furniture and give it back to the people of God. So you know what they did? They put it on an, an, uh, an ox cart. They put it on a cart led by oxen, and they sent the oxen in the way of Israel. And the oxen came to Israel, and Israel got their Ark of the Covenant back, this holy piece of furniture. And what they did is during the reign of the first king of Israel, King Saul, they put the Ark of the Covenant in, in a private residence of a man named Abinadab. And there it was, listen to this, for 20 years long time. Well, who's the king that comes after the first king of Israel? After Saul, it was King David. And when David came to power, he consolidated. That means he centered all his power in the, uh, in the, in the capital of God's people, of Jerusalem. And he said, this is what we need to do. We need to get that Ark of the Covenant out of storage, out of mothball, so to speak, and we need to bring it to Jerusalem. And everybody thought, yeah, that is a good idea. And so what they did is they transported that ark out of mothballs, out of a private residence, to put it center stage among the people of God in Jerusalem. It was a good thing. Now, that's the background. We come to the story now, and right at this part of the story, where they're in the process of transporting that ark of the covenant from kiriath Jerem in a private residence to Jerusalem. So how did they, how did they uh, transport it? Well, in many ways, we'll get back to this a little bit later, they transported it in the same way that their enemies transported it to Israel by way of an ox cart led by oxen. So they get it out of the house of Abinadab, and there's two men that are by this cart. A man named Ahio, Abinadab's one son, he was at the head. And then you have the other son, who was Uzzah, and he was either in the back of it or alongside of it, and that's how they transported it. So they set out transporting it, and as it was on its way, there was a lot of hoopla. There's a lot of singing, and there's a lot of playing of different instruments, and people were thrilled this was a very good thing, and they rejoiced. There was a great party going on as this ox cart is going to Jerusalem, and then it happened. You say, well, what happened? Well, what happened was as the ox cart was going along, we read this in 1 Chronicles 13, the oxen stumbled. Who knows? Maybe they hit, hit a rock, maybe, maybe one of the oxen hit a hole, or maybe it got spooked by something, we don't know. But the oxen stumbled, and as a result, the Ark of the Covenant's kids, it started to slip out of that ox cart. Now, if you were following along and you saw this perfect piece of furniture start to fall out of the ox cart, what would you do? You do your best to make sure that it didn't hit the ground. You don't want it to break apart. And this is what this man Uzzah did. And instinctively, he reached out his hand to keep that ark from falling on the ground. And you would think that God would say, thumbs up, Uzzah, way to go. You saved the ark of the covenant. But instead, the Bible says, our passage, that the anger of God burned against Uzzah. And he struck him down dead. 
You know, sometimes in preparing sermons, I read through a passage, of course, I'm doing the work on the passage, but sometimes, you know, in the back of your mind, you kind of go, you're just dealing with a story. Well, it is a story, but it's a story based on reality. Kids, there is a man who fell down because God struck him. We don't know how. He just struck him. He fell down on the ground, and he died. And you wonder, all those people who were partying and singing, did they all suddenly become quiet? Did they all gather around this man? Did they look at him and see that he indeed was dead? And we look at this, and, and, and it just it doesn't seem like God, does it? <laughs> you know? And it just, it seems that, I don't want to sound irreverent here, but it seems like God was just having a bad day. We all have bad days sometimes, right? Where we wake up and it's just, the, the, the morning's not going well and we get touchy about things. We get, get, we snap over little things, you know, we all have those kinds of days. And it seemed like God was having that kind of day. It's like God was acting inconsistently at that point. And that, that what happened to Uzzah was a punishment that simply did not fit the crime. We get that every once in a while. I don't know if you followed this story from the state of Colorado where a few years ago there was a truck driver that caused a multiple car collision on an interstate. Four people died. Four people died. And he went before a judge, and the judge slapped, did you hear the story? The judge slapped him with a 110-year sentence. And people are like, are you kidding me? A 110-year sentence? Because of an accident where he killed four people, it is tragic. But to, to say 110-year sentence, I mean, that, that's terrible. That, that exceeded the crime. Four million people signed a petition to overturn that sentence because they were so upset. How many people today in the world would sign a petition against how God reacted in this passage? Right? So what really is happening here? I think it all remains somewhat of a mystery to us till we really start digging into the passage. And as we do, I think we begin to understand why God reacted in this way that he did. Now, why did God strike out in such a terrible fashion? Now, some of you here maybe know the answer to that. It has to do with the way that the ark was transported. Some of you may not. Kids, you may not. Probably don't. So let me explain it simply to you. Years ago... God instructed his people about how to build this ark, and he gave very specific description of what that ark was to be made out of and what it was to look like. God also gave very specific instructions about how that ark was supposed to be transported, how it was supposed to be moved when it needed to be moved. Now, uh, A.V., guys, if you could put up the, the passage from uh, Exodus 25. Now, you can look at that. I'm going to read you from Exodus 25 in my Bible. It's going to be just a little bit longer, so just listen to this. God instructs, and he says, They shall make an ark, my people shall make an ark of acacia wood. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, a cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. So again, it's about two feet high, two feet wide, and four feet long approximately. You shall overlay it with pure gold. Inside and outside you shall overlay it, and you shall make on it a molding of gold round it. Now listen to this. The Lord says you shall cast four rings of gold for it and put them on its four feet, two rings on one side and two rings on the other side of it. You shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold 
And you shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry the ark by them. The poles shall remain in the rings of the ark. They shall not be taken from it. And you shall put into the ark the testimony that I give to you. Now, more could be said about that passage, but let's just focus on the way it was supposed to be transported. Kids, think of this. You got this, I don't know, maybe it was about this long here. And what, they, what the Lord instructed his people to do is put a ring here and a ring here and then a ring on that side, a ring on that side, and then you have four long poles and you have to put the poles through the rings and then there would be a man or two here and then there would be a man or two here and these guys would lift it up like this and then the other two guys or the young guy would take it and then he would lift it up like this and they would hoist it up and then that's how they would transport the ark. Now you'd say, why did God say that? <laughs> you know? I mean, couldn't there have been another way to transport it? Well, think about it, kids. When, when, when those men lifted it up, were they touching the ark? Not really. They weren't going like that. They were, they were putting it. So why would God say that to his people to transport in this way? Because God was a holy God, symbolized in that ark. And no human hand should place his hand upon that ark. But what did Uzzah do? The ark, unfortunately, was being carried on an ox cart. King David knew better. The people of Israel knew better. Ahio knew better. Abinadab knew better. Uzzah knew better. They all knew better. Sometimes human wisdom gets in the way of God's wisdom. God says, I want you to do something a certain way. And we say, well, we're going we're gonna to shift that a little bit. Or we think we have a better way. That's never a good thing. So there was that accident. It should never have been on that ox cart in the first ox cart in the first place. Uzzah, because of the stupidity of what the people decided to do, it started to fall out, and he tried to prevent it from falling on the ground, and he touched it. His soiled hands came upon the ark, and the anger of God burned against him and struck him down. With working with people, we're trying to understand the God of the Bible, I will say, you need to understand who you're dealing with. And what I'm going to tell you now is maybe something that you're not going to want to hear, but this is who God is. God, first of all, is holy. Kids, you know what holy means? God is holy. We sometimes sing, holy, 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 right? That him. Or the angels saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. Do you know that that, that is one attribute or quality of God that is mentioned three times in a row? Never love, 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 mercy, 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 or any other attribute. Holiness is mentioned three times. It's a preeminent attribute of God. So when we say that God is holy, we mean that God is completely set apart, both in terms of his being and in terms of his moral nature from human beings. God is God, we are not. God is morally holy, that God is without sin. We are not holy on our best of days. First thing we need to understand is that God is utterly holy. Secondly, we need to understand that God is righteous. That means that God always conforms to his own will. God always conforms to his commands. So that when God gives us all the commandments in his word. God is the one, and Jesus is the one who fulfills these commandments. We cannot, even in the best of our days. 
God is holy, God is righteous, and God is just. And the attribute of justice is closely tied to the first two, holiness and righteousness. Because God is holy and righteous, he must be just. That is, he must give sin what is its due. And what does sin do? Because God is a holy God, the smallest of sin is due punishment in this life as well as the life to come. Oh, 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 but, but, but isn't, God, isn't God a God of love, right? God is a God of mercy, just like the catechism says. And yes, God is a God of love, and God is a God of mercy, but that doesn't cancel out his justice. A man named R.C. Sproul said many years ago, God is obligated because he's holy and just, or holy and righteous to be just, to punish sin. He's obligated. God is not obligated to be merciful, and yet he is. And yet he is. See, all of this which I explained about God, and this is what this passage is all about. Our passage is basically saying, I want you to know who God is. The one with whom we all have to do. Well, David did not understand this, at least at this moment. So there is Uzzah. He's struck down dead. And what's David's immediate reaction? He's angry. Just like a lot of people today. Even maybe some of your first reaction, you get a little bit angry. It's like, what? Really? You could have made an exception there, God? It's very easy to be angry at God, but it's never a good thing to be angry with God. So David is angry, but you notice, as soon as he's angry, he also gets afraid. Verse 10, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against us. God struck him down. And then David, verse 11, was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. Then verse 12, then David was afraid of God that day. Same day, he's both angry, but then he shifts to being afraid. You go, why did he shift from anger to being afraid? I want to suggest something to you, although it's not clear in the text, but I would dare say that David was angry, but the anger didn't last long because he soon realized that what God did to Uzzah, he could very easily do to him. And so then David, from that point, he's afraid. There's fear in him because suddenly David came face to face with the living God and he understood something of his holiness, his righteousness, and his justice. If you would be found here not knowing who God is and not knowing who Jesus is, you need to understand that this is the God of the Bible. You may not like it. There's a lot of things I don't like and you don't like, but we know them to be true, and this is about God. He's holy, he's righteousness and justice. And you need to understand That sin, no matter how small, no matter how small, is really a touching upon the ark of God with soiled hands. God never, ever takes that lightly. lightly. But here's also another thing. The God who is consistently just is also a God who 
has decided to be also merciful. Whenever you think of God, think of two sides of one coin, justice and mercy, mercy and justice. The God who is consistently justice, just is also a God who is merciful. And we see those two things, for instance, in Romans 6, 23, um, where it says, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. You know what the Bible teaches us about Jesus? That God in his mercy and his love sent his son, Jesus Christ, into this world to bear the just penalty that we should have received. It's not like, you know, the God of Islam, where God, in a sense, he just chooses sovereignly to, to forgive or not to forgive. God is not the kind of God where he says, well, you know, I'm just, but I'm just going to let my, my love override my justice, and I'll just kind of wink at sin a little bit, or just pretend it never happened. God doesn't function like that. Justice must be met. But the beautiful thing about the Bible, and here's where we see the mercy of God, the mercy of God is so profound toward us that instead of you and I receiving the just penalty for sin, what God does is he places upon his son, Jesus, instead. That's why Christians are always saying, Jesus died on a cross. Many people go, I don't understand why Jesus died on a cross. Well, Jesus died on a cross because he needed to die on the cross, because he needed to pay the penalty of sin on our behalf so that you and I could be set and that's what Jesus did and that's why the appeal of the Bible the shout out of God hopefully that we hear every week here in some form or another is flee to Christ flee to Christ this is why Christians are always talking about Jesus because there is no life there is no light there is no joy there is no rescue and there is no eternal life apart from Jesus God sent him mercifully and lovingly to us so that we could be set free as he assumed the penalty for us. How does the first question to answer the catechism put it? What is your only comfort in life and death? That I am not my own, but I belong to this one. I belong to Jesus. I just paid it all. Praise God for that. So may us together, may we join hands, even this day, seek him, seek him with all our hearts, and in the end, through repentance and faith, say, Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you for bearing the justice of God. We're going to hear more about the mercy and the love of God in the weeks to come as we see Jesus as the one who was uniquely qualified to be our deliverer and our Lord. Until that time comes, let's uh, close with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, you are just. We see that. But you are also loving and you are merciful. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, above all, that you loved us so much that you remained actively obedient to your Father's will all the way to the point of dying on a cross for us. You didn't have to, but you did because you love us and you set us free and for this, we are so, so thankful, oh God. So, Lord, we bring this prayer to you, and we pray that as the weeks go by, we may come to discover, Lord Jesus, more and more who you are and what you have done for us. We pray this in your name. Amen.